Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture design specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with veteran food writer Claudia Roden about her life exploring the food of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. While it's easy to find recipes for baba ganoush and bouillabaisse today, she tells us that has not always been the case. There hadn't been a single book published in Egypt, neither of Egyptian food nor of any other food, and least of all Jewish. But first... Could a computer replace you in the kitchen? Well, with new smart technologies in the kitchen, it's a question that people are actually asking. But it's also been a fascination for decades. 
At the turn of the next century, most food will be stored frozen in individual portions. The computer will keep a running inventory on all foodstuffs and suggest daily menus based on the nutritional needs of the family. When the meal has been selected, the various portions are fed automatically into the microwave oven for a few seconds of defoing or warming. That was a clip from the short film called 1999 AD. It was produced in the late 1960s by Philco Ford to show their vision of the 1999 House of Tomorrow. So to help us understand our curiosity about computers that cook, with me today is Dr. Alexandra Ketchum. She's the author of the Gastro Obscura article, When Americans Dreamed of Kitchen Computers. Dr. Ketchum, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe you could just set the stage for all of this. Why have we been so interested in not cooking and having a machine do all the work? That's a great question. So there's a few reasons. One part of this has to do with the long history of who has primarily done the cooking. So there's a gender division of this labor. There's also been movements to make household labor more equitable. We do have companies who have come in, especially since the 1950s, and have sold us this idea that they can take care of the cooking with either um, pre-made foods or kind of microwavable foods. But cooking and feeding ourselves still takes a lot of time. And so that's where I think this kind of idea and fascination for the kitchen computer and later kitchen robots comes in. So you've looked at different conceptions of the kitchen computer, past and present. Uh, What did you find? Yeah, I think the thing that sticks out the most is that what the technologies are actually offering is so different than the way that they're painted. So I did research by looking at old computer magazines to see what they said about kitchen computers. And in 1980, Byte Magazine had an issue about smart home technologies and kitchen computers. And the cover had this image of a screen with pearls and a champagne glass. And it said, Madam, your dinner is served. But the actual technology itself had nothing to do with any kind of like robot cooking food or anything. It was basically about recipe storage. So I think that what's most interesting to me is that there's this kind of projection of what this could do that's beyond what the capabilities are, but also this idea of retrofuturism, which is that a lot of the fantasies about the future actually reflect kind of retro gender norms. So the robot, right, in that idea is addressing the woman of the house about the dinner. You know, kitchen robots have been in comic books and the press for decades, uh, like the Jetsons, for example. Um, I think they even had a machine called something like a food cycle. Good morning, George. Morning, Jane. Oh, what is this anyway? What's it taste like, George? Well, this coffee tastes like rocket fuel. Then it's not coffee, it's tea. There's a cross circuit in the food cycle. Lumpy tea? Oh, you've got some of the oatmeal fallout. How's your bacon? Raw. And your eggs? They're cold. And then you also, you know, mentioned this movie in your article called Smart House, uh, which premiered on the Disney Channel in the late 90s. So it's a family. They move into this house with a computerized housekeeper named Pat, and she can make meals appear in an instant. Hey, uh, Pat, how about we open up some pizzas? These girls are starving. Actually, can she make desserts? I'm, like, completely craving something sweet. Besides me? (laughs) Oh, wow. 
Here you go, girls. Help yourselves. So do you think this fascination with technology in the kitchen is driven by popular media? Or do you think it already existed and the media just followed suit? I think for the larger population, science fiction and shows like The Jetsons and even up until 1999 with Disney's Smart House have really brought attention to the public about the development of these kinds of technologies. But at the same time, behind the scenes, computer scientists and engineers were working on some of these projects. Right. So this isn't all just in people's imagination. Uh, There really have been kitchen computers that people have manufactured and tried to sell. Uh, In 1969, Honeywell put out the first commercially available kitchen computer, but it didn't know how to cook. So explain what it did do. So the Honeywell computer was around the size of a pretty standard kitchen table. It was red and white and had a series of knobs and buttons. And essentially, it was a fancy way of having digitized recipe cards more than anything else. So Neiman Marcus sold the Honeywell kitchen computer for, drumroll, $10,000, which is like about $80,000 in today's money. And then you had to code in the ingredients in a computer language almost, like broccoli was 00011001000, just to get a recipe. Yeah, I mean, it was basically a gimmick to draw attention to the new Honeywell computer systems um, that were used for other purposes besides the kitchen computers. Originally, it was supposed to just be like for show, but they weren't actually going to make them. But there was so much interest, although again, no evidence that anyone bought one, that they did actually have to produce 10 of the computers. One of the most interesting stories was the IBM computer Watson, you know, examining tens of thousands of recipes and then trying to create its own recipes, right? To see if it could compete with a recipe developer. Uh, And some of the items they came up with, Creole shrimp lamb dumpling, Baltic apple pie, Austrian chocolate burrito uh, with apricot puree, edamame, ground beef, and cheese. So I, I guess a computer is actually not very good at <laughs> at doing what humans are very good at, which is developing recipes, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it would be possible to train not necessarily Watson, but some computers using data models in which you gave them more flavor pairings. So you could eventually teach it, okay, well, like cinnamon and nutmeg actually go well together, but cinnamon and raw shrimp might not be the best pairing, right? So over time, I guess you could train certain models, but I don't see computers replacing humans when it comes to recipe development. I mean, it could possibly be an aid, but is it an aid that we need or is it just because it's something exciting to see if computers can do it. Well, as you wrote, technology in search of a problem. Um, And that's, I think, once we hit the computer age, people were running around trying to figure out how to use the technology, not whether we needed to use it to solve a problem, but, uh, hey, we had the technology, let's use it. So this year, Moly Robotics came out, they claim, with the world's first fully robotic kitchen. Yeah. And actually, a robot does cook complete meals. So the Moly Robotic Kitchen is a fully integrated unit and they're anthropomorphic hands, which replicate the movement 
of human hands. That's why it's able to cook for you, use the utensils, which are specially optimized for use both by robots and by humans. So Molly Robotics comes out with this $338,000 thing. I mean, are they, they're obviously not seriously thinking they're going to you know, get a return on investment here. Because who's going to buy this? Yeah. So it, some of this stuff is just floating. It's like people doing concept cars at the Detroit Auto Show, right? They're never going to build them. Is, is that what's going on here? Like a company like Honeywell and its time is just out there having a little bit of fun with technology to create a little bit of a stir, but have realized this is actually not something that's going to come to market. Yeah. I mean, Honeywell did it with the Neiman Marcus catalog. It was really supposed to be a publicity stunt. Um, I think many of these things are a way to draw attention to the capabilities of these companies. So Honeywell showing kind of the processing capability of their computers, uh, Moly Robotics showing the capability of their own robots. So what do you see for the next 10 years? Well, you're asking a historian to talk about the future. But if the past is anything of an indication, I would say that we'll continue to have more kind of flashy, gimmicky items put on the market, but most of them actually won't be adopted by consumers. I think ultimately what the market is currently offering doesn't have too much of a place in a household, right? I don't see um, in 10 years moly robotics being in every home. Alex, thank you so much. Uh, the history of science fiction in the kitchen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What's next? The world of 1999 and beyond is limited only by the boundaries of our imagination today. That was Dr. Alexandra Ketchum. She's a professor at McGill University. Her article for Gastro Obscura is When Americans Dreamed of Kitchen Computers. Okay, now it's time for me and my co-host, Sarah Moulton, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Chris, when you cook, I know you pour yourself a glass of wine, so do I, but do you listen to music? Do you listen to the news? Sarah, you've known me a long time. I have. What music do I listen to almost exclusively? Grateful Dead. Bingo. All right. Yeah, it's, we it, are married, aren't we yeah, now? It's, well, it's weird. There are three things I listen to. The Grateful Dead. Um, I will listen to opera, especially Italian opera, which I love, which I, makes no sense as a combination. And then BBC Radio 4 Extra is, if you have, you know, Alexa or one of those things, just say play BBC Radio 4 Extra. It's the fabulous channel, which has really dumb, you know, British comedy from like the 50s. It has mystery theater stuff. It has science fiction. It has, you know, Desert Island Discs, which is that great show where they ask people on to talk about the three songs they would bring to them on a desert island. So it's just this great channel. Wow. I would say that's my go-to. BBC Radio 4 Extra is just phenomenal. I have to check that out. Yeah, it is really good. Yeah. Yeah. And you, by the way? Well, we're usually, we have a routine. So I start cooking at 6.30. We eat at 7.30 if all goes well. And we usually listen to the news 
And mm. uh, it was funny because I was thinking, wow, how could you listen to this BBC with all these, you know, commentaries? That's like multitasking. You're cooking and focusing on cooking and also listening to something and making sense of it. But I listen to the nightly news, so I guess it's the same thing. No, no, no. BBC Silver Extra is more Benny Hill. I know, but even so, <laughs> you have to listen and pay attention if it's a story or a murder mystery or whatever it mm. is. But, you know, when I'm alone and I'm working on a project, like when I make the go-to recipe for the family, which is short ribs, it would be jazz, old school jazz, you know, yeah. Miles Davis. I like that too. John Coltrane, all those guys. The trouble is now I'm too lazy to put on records, so I need somebody to just do me a playlist. I'm going to work on that in the new year. Okay. Time okay. to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Becky in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Well, how nice. How can we help you today? I have a question about converting some of my older recipes from volume measure to weight measure. Good idea. Yeah, like I have all of your old cookbooks <laughs> and your latest one, you have weights listed. But some of your older ones and some of my favorite recipes are written as volume. And I'm not sure how to convert them. I think weight is more accurate, but it's also so convenient. Yeah, weight is 100% more accurate because we all measure flour differently. It all depends on how you measure it, if you pack it or if you sort of shake it in and level it off. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go with weights. But then I couldn't find anybody who would agree. So I went with King Arthur Flour's weight, which is one cup of flour is 4.25 ounces or 120 grams. However, I'm pretty sure, Chris, that uh, Milk Street has a different measurement. Yeah, and, we disagree with King Arthur. Yeah, I know. And then also, if you look at the European model, they have their own idea. So what I would advise for you, because it's sort of a crapshoot, and it depends on if you're dealing with all the same author, then they probably measured their flower all the same way if they measured it. So you just need to figure out what they meant by one cup. And then you're going to have to do the same thing with a different author. But I hope moving forward, everybody will go with weight not measure. But anyway, Chris. I think you just have to accept, and I measure in grams because that's the easiest, but you could do it in ounces. I would just pick a number. It's not that King Arthur's wrong or we're wrong or right. Right. We say 130 grams per cup of all purpose. That's roughly four and a half ounces. King Arthur says 120. You just have to pick whatever you want because there's no way you're going to figure out what the author had intended unless they actually publish weights, which they rarely do. I would go, of course I would, I would go with 130 grams per cup. <laughs> but then cake flour and bread flour are also different, right? Because they don't weigh the same as all purpose. So you need to just set that out and write that down for you in the kitchen. You could also do sugar and other things, but flour would be the, really the critical one. Cake flour, bread flour, all purpose flour. If I'm measuring small ingredients like 12 grams of salt, do you think I should have a micro scale or just use the regular no. scale? I wouldn't. No. Let me give you the numbers. All purpose is 130. Cake is probably 120. So it's a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Bread flour is a little more, you know, like 137, 138. So just keep those numbers. Don't worry about small things cream of tartar, baking mm -hmm. powder, baking soda. Sugar is pretty easy to measure. It's not a question of packing it like flour. It's really the flowers you have to worry about because it's hard to measure with volume, as Sarah said, because you pack them or don't pack them. And, it can make a 20% difference. Okay. So if I go to the Milk Street website? Just Google 
weighing flour Milk Street, the chart will come up. But do put know. Milk Street in there. Otherwise, you're going to get five different opinions. Right. When we did the homework, you know, we found 10 places with 15 opinions. So Yeah. You just have to settle on one. But Becky, if you make any of my recipes, go with 120 per cup Okay. for the old cookbooks. Perfect. That's wonderful. Becky, thank you so much. Yes, thanks, Becky. Yes, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Linda Finch. How are you? Well, pretty decent for the day. (laughs) This is going to be a good call, I can just tell. (laughs) How can we help you? Well, I saw your uh, show about Israel, and I was there several years ago. Well, you know, and I absolutely detest yogurt here. I liked their yogurt, and I have not been able to find any anywhere around here. Of course, I'm West Texas, and I thought, Ed, when you mentioned or we're talking about it, I thought maybe they know what's the difference between the Israeli yogurt and ours. You know, yogurt is milk, it's heated, it's cultured, and it thickens, it cools, and it's 4 to 5% fat. The difference is going to be what milk are you using? You know, if you have great Jersey milk, like you have in some places in Vermont, I know, and then you buy something that's more processed and it's not it's using Holstein milk or something, it's not as good. So it's all about the milk, and I don't know what's on your shelves there, but if you can find a local producer... Uh-huh. That's going to have flavor. But if you're going to buy a big national brand, it just isn't going to have a lot of taste to it. I'm sorry, but that's it. I mean, you have dairy farms where you can buy directly, or do you have stores where they sell local yogurts? This is indeed cattle country, but raised yeah. for beef. That's what I thought. The difference in milk and flavor and other things is huge depending upon the breed and depending upon what they're eating depending on the time of year sometimes. You know, if the forage is not good, the milk gets thinner and bluer, and the quality of the yogurt's not as good. So it's all about that. I mean, Sarah, do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to ask, what is it that you actually liked, Linda, about the Israeli yogurt? And what is it that you really don't like about what you can find here? Something about the taste, something about the texture? Texture for sure. There was some difference in the taste, but it was mostly, I think, the texture. Okay, and so how did the texture differ? It was a lot thinner. I wonder if what you've mostly been tasting here in the United States is Greek yogurt, which is, you know, sort of drained, concentrated yogurt and sort of more dense, less creamy. But I think if you get real yogurt from a farm or a local producer, it is thinner. If you go into the supermarket and buy non-Greek yogurt, it's set up. You know, it definitely is more like custard than it is like real yogurt. Real yogurt is thinner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And so hmm. you make a good point because once you get in the supermarket, you put a spoon in it and take a bite out and it just stays, <laughs> that hole just stays in the yogurt. But real yogurt, if you do that, it's more soup-like than it is custard-like. Right. Thank you much. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to improve your cooking, give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kate Goff from Washington State. How can we help you today? 
Yes, my question is about the uh, lasagna bolognese that uh, was uh, introduced in the TV show, Milk Street. As I was making it, I noticed that it used no-boiled noodles, which I don't use very often at all. And I needed to fix this in order to be able to freeze. So that's how I got me started thinking that since that used no-boiled noodles, should I bake it entirely before freezing it? No. I would assemble the whole thing, and there's so much liquid in there. I think the noodles uh-huh. would be fine. You don't need to bake it and freeze it and then reheat it. I would uh-huh. set it up and then freeze it so it's ready to go into the oven. It should be fine to go from the freezer to the oven, or if you want to defrost it first, defrost it in the fridge. Is it better to be defrosted if it's all possible before cook it? Well, it's going to take longer for sure, you know. Right. So from the point of view of knowing when it's done, it might be better uh-huh. to defrost it first in the fridge. Let's see what Chris has to say. You know, bolognese, a meat sauce, a ragu, doesn't have any dairy in it. Yes. Just three kinds of meat and a few veggies. Cooks for four or five hours. So I would freeze the sauce separately, actually. And it's no boiled noodles. It's the ragu, bolognese. Uh And then they have a little Parmesan cream sauce they make. Right. Which is not too much. So the best way to do it would be to freeze the sauce and then just assemble and then bake. The thing that I would worry about is the noodles as they sit in the sauce and then they slowly freeze and then you have to take it out, defrost it, and heat it. You might end up with it. The texture is not ideal of noodles. Noodles are always tough in a freezer. Yeah. I would agree with Sarah. You could try it assembled, freeze it, but I, I would not pre-bake it because the noodles we agree are going you know, yeah. just be disastrous. But the ideal thing would be just to make a big batch of that sauce, which, by the way, I could live on for a couple months. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then just assemble at the last minute because the Parmesan cream's quick and you just the no-boiled noodles don't have to be boiled. So would it take you a few minutes to assemble it and then bake it? Okay. So, well, I just kind of answered it. I was wondering whether cooked noodles or those that one has been noodles being cooked freezes differently in a lasagna. Freezing cooked noodles is... Not a good idea. No. Pasta and liquid just tends to keep absorbing the liquid. And the okay. pasta gets soggier and soggier yeah, and, and it gets soggier. bigger and bigger. Yeah. And, yeah. Last question. So the sauce, white sauce, would not freeze. Is that right? Yeah, that Parmesan cream sauce is not going to yeah. be ideal yeah. frozen. Yeah. Okay. I mean, All right. it would still taste good, but the texture would be strange. There's no mozzarella in this. We should just say this is a real lasagna from Bologna. So it's tons okay. of meat sauce some pasta, and a little bit of Parmesan cream, which is absolutely fabulous. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks yeah. so much for calling. Yeah. Keiko, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next is my conversation with food writer Claudia Roden. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is 
the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with food writer Claudia Roden. 
1968, she published her first cookbook, A Book of Middle Eastern Food. Now in her latest book, Claudia Roden's Mediterranean, she has compiled recipes and stories inspired by decades of travel across the region. Claudia, welcome to Milk Street. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So let me read something from your book. Just, it paints a picture that I find so charming. You're talking about being young, growing up in Cairo, and you write, When my father came home from work, we'd sit on the balcony where we could see sailboats gliding gracefully on the Nile. And Awad, our cook, would bring a tray of little things to eat. My parents had a rack or whiskey and nibbled at the food. So that world, which I guess no longer exists, was really, you know, pretty special, right? It is. And it certainly doesn't exist. But I do find still bits of that world and a lot of it that I love. Even though we were thrown out, I really feel I'm welcome back. (laughs) Could you talk about that? Because after the Suez War, you said Jews were leaving Egypt in a hurry because they were forced to leave. Could you explain what happened? Yes. The Suez Crisis was when Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, had nationalized the Suez Canal without compensating the two companies that had built it. And they were French and English. And so Britain and France decided to attack Egypt. And they asked Israel to join them. So the British, the French, and the Jews were thrown out of Egypt. And everybody left everything behind. Hmm. Uh, But for me, it was not such a shock because I was in Europe. I had been to school in Paris and I had come to London to study art. You were quite good. You you went to St. Martin's School of Art in the 50s. Uh, and that you, I, I saw one of your paintings, which looks like a Dutch master. Is that something you, you didn't pursue because you were more interested in, in being a writer and a cookbook author? Or, or did you continue painting after that? No, I only went for two years. And that's when my parents arrived with a flood of relatives and friends. And for about 10 years, I was in that world of refugees. And the one thing that they were talking about a lot was recipes. And to me, it felt that the most important thing I could do in the world was to record our recipes, because I thought if somebody doesn't do it, it will be lost forever. And definitely for me, the collecting of recipes was a way of being close to people whom I felt we would have lost. Well, you point out that exchanging recipes after being expelled was a way of people connecting with each other, remembering each other. They didn't know if they'd see each other again, so they shared a recipe. So recipes became, in a way, the fabric of refugees, right, in some Exactly. Absolutely. It was the one thing also that kept about who we are there hadn't been a single book published in Egypt, neither of Egyptian food nor of any other food, and least of all Jewish, because the Jews were a very mixed lot. Three of my grandparents had come from Syria. 
one of my grandmothers was from Turkey. And so we did have a very mixed kind of food. And now I'm 85, and so a lot of the people now, it's their grandchildren who want these recipes because it tells them who they are, where their parents and grandparents came from. You and I have been around a while. Um, you have a really interesting background, uh, and, and you've seen lots of different cultures at very different times. We always miss the past as we're older, but do you think the past really was better in some ways, or you think that's just a function of being older? It might be that we remember just the good things of the right. past. Of course. But I don't think we should forget the past either because that's how we go forward. But I feel now we are in a global culture and you can go from one country to the other and, you know, everyone speaks English, we listen to the same music. Even the same foods are fashionable. There is a lot about this culture that I see which is fantastic and exciting, but there's a lot of it that isn't. But I can see that hopefully that will pass and that we can hold on to the good things of the past and go back to them. So let's talk about Mediterranean cooking. We recently did a a book on that too. And and the thing that struck me was, uh, (laughs) you know, it's like dozens or hundreds of different cultures and cuisines and languages and styles, you know, from Turkey to North Africa. So to define Mediterranean cooking, which may be impossible, you you did a good job. You said part of the charm of Mediterranean cooking is its sobriety. I like the term sobriety. A lot of the Mediterranean is um, agricultural. Because of the climate, they can grow fantastic vegetables. They can have fruit trees. They can have olive trees. They can have vines. So it's really rural world. And the rural world is poor on the whole. But they do have marvelous ingredients. But I have to say that apart from this frugal type of cooking, there is also a grand style. There were big empires in this area, and the empires had capitals. There, they had cuisines that were very, very, very refined, and they had lots and lots of chefs who were experimenting. Yeah, my understanding was in in Istanbul, Constantinople, that uh, there might be 30 or 40 chefs in the palace, each with a specialty. Yeah, I think there was more than... um, 30 or 40, (laughs) because at some occasions they had 2,000 people eating. Yeah. And actually, because of that, Turkey is the first country that had a codified cuisine because they had to write on a piece of paper how much to put in a dish Hmm. when you're going to make rice, how much water, because they had all these chefs who had to really know what they should be doing. Well, I guess Julia Child wasn't the first person to write a cookbook. (laughs) Like a thousand years before. Um, But some of the things are simple. I I just wanted to talk about this. You say a usual way to cook vegetables in the Mediterranean 
with delightly poached in water and then served with a little salt and drizzle of extra virgin olive oil. You know, the simplicity of that is really appealing, but it seems like today that that just is too simple for people, but it, it just seems so wonderful. It's out of fashion. Yeah. And of course, if you boil and boil and boil, yes, it's horrible. And I think in Britain, certainly, people used to boil and boil and boil. Right. But it can be very lightly boiled. You know, I was in Cadiz in Spain, and we were so happy. My friend was, she was boiling all the vegetables in the evening, and it was everything, artichokes, but each one had its timing. So they weren't ever overcooked. And then she just had this lovely olive oil. And that's what I do every single day. I eat that. Yeah, it's simple. And I don't know. It's just one of those things that we need to get back to. Um, You you also talk about the traditional way of ending a meal in the Mediterranean is with fruit. And that also is very appealing to me, the notion of some dates or oranges or pistachios at the end of a meal. Yes. Just peel oranges, slice them. Just simple. And that's also a tradition that I adore in the Middle East, that when people come, the hostess starts peeling the fruit for them. And I remember friends in Morocco, they put in a piece of clementine or tangerine in a date. And this for me, I just will remember it always. It is such a gesture. And I would feel that it is this casualness and simplicity that it is a good thing to adopt. Just have friends over and do the simplest thing, but make it taste good. So we started with a balcony overlooking the Nile, but is there another moment that just represents the very best, you know, of what food is all about? I feel I have a lot because I spent many years traveling to research the food in places. And I feel for me, there were really, really magic moments, you know, like in Spain, that I just feel, what joy, what joy, how lucky, lucky I was to be there and to eat that and to be with those people. In Italy, I went to every single region to research the food of the region. And in Turkey, I just was in Turkey in November to get an award. Can you believe it? (laughs) We had so many magnificent banquets and uh, it was just magical the whole time. Better than going to the opera, better than going to the theater. (laughs) So, So, yes. I call it magic moments. Claudia, it's been an honor and a pleasure, and we need to do this again very soon. Thank you. The honor is mine and the pleasure is mine. That was Claudia Roden. Her latest book is Claudia Roden's Mediterranean. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude defined the genre of magic realism, which is a blending of the everyday and the miraculous. You know, magic realism is not just a literary effect, it's also history. Take Claudia Roden's Cairo between the great wars. She remembers watching boats on the Nile from her family's balcony. 
Now, I recently visited a small town in Jalisco, Mexico, and my memories are also dreamlike. A sleepy town square midday, bread baking in a homemade wood-fired oven, and a child riding a palomino through fields of agave plants. So my suggestion is this. Seek out the last remaining destinations of magic realism before they disappear forever. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, broken phyllo cake with orange and bay. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well. This is one of those, you know, travel things where I talk about a great place to go. That I didn't get invited to? Well, actually, I didn't get to go either. Uh, We're talking about Crete, and our food editor, J.M. Hirsch, got to go to visit someone we really love, chef and cookbook author, Mariana Levaditaki. Among other things, she made the world's most interesting dessert. It's a broken phyllo cake, which makes absolutely no sense to me, (laughs) but now is one of my favorite cakes. So what exactly is broken phyllo cake? It is a very interesting cake. I almost hesitate to call it a cake just because I think when we think cake, we think birthday layer cake. This one has more of a custardy texture on the inside. And one of the most interesting things about it is that there is no flour in the cake, technically. Instead, we're using phyllo dough, and that provides sort of the structure of the cake. I've watched video of making it, and we've actually made it in our kitchen a few times. But you start with a big bowl of broken phyllo, right? That's right. So you take that phyllo dough that you get in the freezer, roll it into a log, and then slice it into strips. And that kind of yields these sort of shreds of phyllo dough. And that gets folded into the batter. And the batter is really simple. It's just sugar, orange zest, eggs, yogurt, oil, salt, a little baking powder, because if you wanted a, a slight lift to the cake. But one thing that Mariana taught us, she learned, is to take that phyllo and put it in the oven before you add it hmm. to the batter. She was finding that the cake was a little more dense than she would like, and kind of drying out that phyllo dough just gives it just hmm. a little bit more structure to be able to absorb that batter. This is actually relatively simple as cakes go, right? It's very simple. You know, you just have to cut that phyllo, toast it in the oven, fold it into the batter. It bakes for about 45 minutes, and then it gets topped with a simple syrup, which keeps it even Mm. more moist than it already is. Yeah, and the thing, as you said, that's so interesting is when you take a bite, it does have a soft, as you Mm -hmm. said, almost custardy texture, which belies the top, you know, you think it's going to be kind of crispy or something, but it's very uh, unctuous and delicious. Right. And that simple syrup, which has some really nice warm spices in it, bay leaf, cardamom, cinnamon sticks, and some orange peel. You poke the cake right when it comes out of the oven and pour some of that syrup over the top. It starts to absorb in the cake. Then you pour the rest of it over and let it sit for a couple of hours. So you get all of that warm spice flavor, the orange, and that custardy texture. The cake will stay moist for days if it lasts that long but it's great warm with some sweetened whipped cream mixed with a little yogurt Mm. i even like it cold out of the refrigerator for breakfast yeah i find it's very good at eight nine ten eleven twelve (laughs) one two three i would not be mad to have that as my midnight snack i've tried it at all times during the day and night (laughs) lynn thank you broken phyllo cake really an unusual recipe but easy and now really one of my favorites thank you you're welcome 
You can get this recipe for broken phyllo cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tells us about life as a pasta-shaped entrepreneur. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, Or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617 Two four nine three one six seven, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Andy LeBeau. This must be Sarah. Say moi. <laughs> and where are you calling from? I live in Narragansett, Rhode Island. Oh, nice. How can we help you? Well, it actually happened last night. I made baked stuffed scallops. Mm-hmm. I make a dry mix, which is Ritz crackers and a little bit of black pepper, a little bit of garlic powder, a little bit of old bake. And I make a wet mix, which is butter, vermouth, and lemon juice. Hmm. And then you can imagine the rest. What could I do to substitute for the butter? If you have a nice-tasting olive oil, that is what I would go for. Roughly, you use about three-quarters of a amount of the oil to substitute for the butter. For one cup of butter, you'd use three-quarters of a cup. Now, you're not using cups, but you know what I'm saying. Sure, sure, okay. Chris? The best way to cook scallops is in a very hot pan. Matter of fact, if you have two very hot pans, that's not a bad idea. And get them really nicely browned on one side and then flip them and do the other side. You can use ghee, right, which is clarified butter. It does not have lactose in it. Usually the problem with butter is lactose. And then if you want to serve it with something else, great. But I think scallops are so good. That would be my take. No, I'm just going to say I think that Andy really likes this recipe. And, you know, it's very New England with the crust. What's great about ghee is it has a nice toasty flavor. It's more interesting than clarified butter. I love Mill Street. I like you guys. It's so much fun. Oh. Just don't mess with your crushed Ritz cracker scallop <laughs> recipe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Don't you mess. In fact, Chris, I think you should try the Ritz cracker. <laughs> you know what? I, I like pretzel salad, so I, I, who am I to talk about that? My last word is that uh, my work world was as a process engineer, and cooking to me is a process. It is. Once you dial down the process and you have the right ingredients, and it takes two or three or five or six times before you dial it in. But once you dial it in, then it's all about repeatability. Yeah. Andrew, thanks all for right, calling. Ben. Yeah, yes. take care. All right, okay. you too. Yeah. I appreciate right. it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you have a kitchen mystery and want an answer, give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Judy from Austin, Texas. How can we help you? Well, I'm trying to increase the uh, use of dried beans in my diet. Good. And I've always heard, don't salt the cooking water before fully cooking the beans because that will make the beans tough. But I recently salted my cooking water before adding Anasazi beans, and they were the most tender, creamy, flavorful beans ever. Was that Earlier advice, just bunk, and what else might I have believed in error? Whether to soak the beans or do a quick soak, is that necessary? Should I drain off the soaking water? Uh, when do I add the aromatics like uh, you know, garlic, onion, tomatoes, other enhancers? Since I believe you and Sarah, I thought I'd ask you. <laughs> We're in the belief business. Um, well, you have to soak your beans. I mean, unless it's lentils, but, you know, like a white navy bean. great. The longer cooking beans. One quart of water and one tablespoon of kosher salt. So usually it's two quarts of water and two tablespoons of kosher salt. And we're using diamond crystal, which is about half as salty per tablespoon as table salt. 
Uh, soak that overnight, up to 24 hours, drain it off, and that'll make a huge difference. The beans will come out creamy and they'll cook evenly. As far as aromatics go, there's very little flavor absorption when you cook beans with like garlic and other things. So I tend to add flavors once the beans are cooked. Like if you put herbs in the water or something, it's not really going to make a difference in the beans. So I, I would do all of that after cooking, but that's the basic method. Right. Is I that, agree. Am I good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's so funny how we all believed that for so long, you know, that acid and salt were so wrong for beans. You shouldn't add them till after. Indeed, that's true about acid because that will toughen the skins. But the salt, no, au contraire. They're deeply flavored. They're much creamier. They're much more tender. It's much better. So, yeah, salt. Do it. Good. Well, I'm delighted that y'all agree on that, and that's the procedure I will follow. Good. Yay. Thanks for calling. Take yes. care. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Next up, it's time for Dan Pashman. Dan, what's going on? Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I remember a few months ago you introduced your new, was it Cascatelli? Is that the name of your uh, pasta shape? Cascatelli is my pasta shape that I spent three years inventing. Yes. Came out last year. And you make each piece by hand, as I, as I hear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but my kids and I and my wife have been enjoying it. Great. And uh, I assume you're now a, a pasta magnate or something, right? Uh, sure. I'll take magnate or impresario. That would be another good yeah. word. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I have some exciting updates, Chris. You know, it's been a very exciting, kind of crazy year since the pasta launched. Um, at the end of last year, it was named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2021. Whoa. And in fact, it was one of the inventions on the cover of the magazine, which was not on my vision board when I when I set out on this mission. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And then, you know, I've gotten a whole education in supply chains. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And manufacturing. And now, just recently, I'm excited to tell you, Chris, that we launched a gluten-free version. So w what is the secret to that? Because I, I would think getting the right tensile strength, as you might say, and the right chew would be difficult. It is difficult. And the truth is you're never going to completely fully replicate what gluten does. It's very unique. But gluten's a protein. And what you can do is, the first thing is take starch molecules, and they manipulate the starch molecules so that they take on some of the same properties of gluten. The other thing you can do is to use a base that has a lot of protein already, such as lentils or chickpeas. Right. And while it's not exactly the same as gluten protein, it has some similarities. So the bonza pasta is made from chickpeas, and when I tested a bunch of them, that was one that I felt had the best texture. But it took longer than I expected to get it made, and I think longer than the folks at Bonza expected, because one of the things I've now learned, having had a year under my belt of, of making this pasta shape, is that it's really hard to make. It's kind of a miracle that we ever got it made in the first place, because getting the ruffles to form and stay on the shape is like balancing on a razor's edge. If you make it too sturdy and you lose the ruffles entirely. If you make very frilly ruffles, they look beautiful, but then when you cook it, they all fall off. Do you ever think in high school you'd be sitting here today worrying about ruffles that fall off? Look, Chris, the only class I ever got below a B in was AP Biology. But, you know, in, in retrospect, that was where I learned about surface area to volume ratio, right. which turns out to be a very foundational concept in the world of food. It doesn't only explain why, you know, frogs are able to crawl up trees. 
<laughs> That's the first thing I thought yeah, of, Dan. It, it also explains why some pastas cook faster than others. So so there are thousands of shapes of pasta. Hundreds. There's three or 400 shapes with about 1,200 names. Okay. And your objective was to create a pasta that held the sauce particularly well and also had a different experience in the mouth. Is that something many people have said to me, every time you think you've invented something new in the world of food, you haven't. Do you think this Cascatelli actually existed at some point in the past, or you actually invented something new? To the best of my knowledge, I actually invented something new. And and I, I uh, you know, obviously I haven't seen every pasta shape that's ever been invented in human history. But I don't think that this shape could have been made hundreds of years ago, you know, in the, in the hills of Sicily, because being able to extrude this pasta, you know, the machines that they used to make pasta on even a few decades ago wouldn't have been able to do that. Here's what I want. I want you to take two weeks, get a large knapsack, fill it with boxes of cascatelli, <laughs> and, and hike the mountains of Sicily trying out pasta with local families. That would be great. And, and I, I, I think we should get a videographer and just get their reactions. Right. It's basically just like one Nona after another slamming a door in my face. <laughs> Look, let's pitch it to Netflix, Chris. Yeah. I think there's a series there. Dan, thank you very much. You and I are headed to Sicily for two weeks uh, with a Cascatelli taste test. My bags are packed, Chris. <laughs> that was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or simply want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.